This is officially the 321st episode of the Israel Connection, coming to you on JA Community Radio, broadcasting live on 88FM and streaming over the internet at j-air.com.au. My name is David Schulberg, bringing you another episode of this weekly radio program that provides analysis and insight with important interviews and discussion about Israel. At a recent media briefing, Professor Avi Bell an expert commentator-advisor on international law, terrorism and the Arab-Israeli conflict, provided a legal analysis of Israel's war against Hamas from the perspective of international law as it applies to war. Let's listen. Does Israel have a duty to supply goods of any kind to the Gaza Strip during the war? Does Israel have a duty to facilitate the entry of goods supplied by third parties of any kind? or of humanitarian items in particular? And if yes, what kind of goods subject to what conditions? Do the answers to the first two questions change if Israel has imposed a siege on the Gaza Strip? And is there currently a siege? Avi Bell is a professor of law at Bar-Ilan University and the University of San Diego. He's a senior fellow at Kohelet Policy Forum and expert commentator advisor on international law, terrorism, and the Arab-Israeli conflict. Avi, please start. Okay, thank you very much. Before I answer those three questions, I I do have to make one more general observation, a legal point, and it's an important one. I'm sure that uh, uh, everyone here knows that the current conflict is an asymmetric one in a number of ways. And one of them is that you have a, a conflict between a party that violates the laws that it consists of of war criminals, terrorists, people who are deliberately violating in a number of ways international law in all of their actions, and one that uh, does not, one that has um, an entire uh, structure for ensuring uh, compliance with the law. Now, this is an important observation because there are specific violations of the law that are carried out by Hamas that will turn out to be important as we, we, we go along. It's not simply that Hamas carries out uh, the war crimes of targeting uh, civilians as such, uh, using illegal weaponry. It's also that it uses human shields as a matter of policy that's important. It's also important that Hamas is an organization that engages in terrorism, that is in criminal acts that are defined as terrorism by conventions like the International Convention for the Suppression of uh, Terrorist Financing, the International Convention for the Suppression of Terrorist Bombings, and other instruments, uh, uh, hostage-taking, other instruments that define the actions taken by Hamas now and over the years as terrorism. And all that is important background as we address the questions of supply. All right, I want to address three questions in supply very briefly, and I'm going to try to do it as really as briefly as possible so we can get to whatever concerns you have. Let's start with number one. Does Israel have a duty to supply anything? Toys, clothes, electricity, fuel, medicine, food, water. The general rule in international law is that absent a special duty of some kind, no state is required to provide any supplies uh, um, to any other actor. Right? Uh, it may have a, a duty to its own citizens. It does not have du- such duties to the citizens of other countries or to the residents of, of other territories where it is not able to exercise sovereignty. 
And that would mean that absent a special duty, there's no reason to believe that Israel has to supply any of these items. It's been argued over the years since Israel withdrew from the Gaza Strip, going on almost 20 years ago. Nevertheless, Israel should be considered to have the duties of a belligerent occupier in the Gaza Strip due to reasons that do not appear to apply to any other case in the history of uh, international law. In general, in order for a state to be considered a belligerent occupier of other territory, it has to have uh, effective control of that territory acquired through belligerence, uh, generally uh, non-consensually, where the territory is territory of another state with which the alleged occupier engaged in an armed conflict. In the case of Gaza, none of these elements are present. But in particular, it's fairly clear that Israel does not have effective control of the Gaza Strip and has not had any since uh, 2005. Right now, what we're looking at is Israeli troops gathering to try to achieve control uh, of the Gaza Strip enough to eliminate the Hamas terrorist organization and free the hundreds of hostages taken by Hamas. There is no plausible argument that Israel has effective control and therefore no plausible argument that Israel has any duties to the Gaza Strip and its residents as a belligerent occupier. In the absence of a duty to supply, what are the duties of states uh, in a situation like this? There's a, a, uh, um, a generalized permission. States are not required, no more than they're required to supply. They're not required to facilitate third-party supply. However, um, um, during wartime, and it makes no difference whether the territory is considered occupied or not, during wartime, all parties to the conflict are required to facilitate uh, the delivery of humanitarian relief. Humanitarian relief is a funny term, and so there are disputes about what's included and what's not included in it. But let's say that the basic list that everybody agrees on is that uh, humanitarian supplies include food, and medicines. Then there's arguments about the other items. They don't really matter for our purposes because the duty to facilitate humanitarian relief, which again falls on all parties to, to an armed conflict, which would mean in this case, not only Israel, but also the Hamas terrorist organization, the duty to facilitate uh, humanitarian relief is subject to several important caveats. Uh, the most important one of which in this case is that states are relieved of the duty to facilitate supply if there, is, there are grounds for suspecting that the relief will be diverted to the enemy's purposes. The enemy's, uh, the enemy's purposes being primar primarily military, but actually, there's a, 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 a term in the um, uh, in the Geneva in the Fourth Geneva Convention, I believe, in in Article 23. I might be uh, misremembering the uh, the paragraph, but uh, it's definitely uh, there that it includes diversion for the economic assistance of the enemy. Where there are reasonable grounds for fearing diversion of aid, even humanitarian aid does not have to be facilitated; it may be blocked. Now, in the case of the, uh, Gaza, uh, uh, of the Gaza Strip under the control of Hamas terrorist organization, diversion is not simply uh, a reasonable fear. It is a near certainty. Um, we have uh, uh, 18 years of experience 
or uh, uh, 16 years of experience if you only want to count since the, uh, uh, the Hamas coup to take over the Gaza Strip, of diversion of aid to terrorist organizations. This includes every kind of diversion imaginable, stealing the supplies that's happened during this war. UNRWA reported that uh, um, the, the so-called Gaza Health Ministry, that is uh, Hamas, came and confiscated fuel. It's abused facilities. It's placed people on the uh, payroll of uh, humanitarian relief organizations in order to launder money. It's uh, taken supplies that have already been delivered in multiple cases, not simply taking fuel from UNRWA. It's also done things like digging up pipes, water pipes laid by the European Union to deliver water to the to the the, res- the residents of Gaza. It's dug them up in order to convert them into rockets to commit the war crime of attacking Israeli civilians. It's taken over trucks as they've delivered goods. It's seized for itself the supplies and used them. It's You can even see that in the trucks, in the photographs that were taken by the terrorists themselves as they were carrying out the atrocities on October 7th, you can see in the floors of some of the trucks, bags, uh, humanitarian relief bags, uh, bags that are marked UNICEF, medical kits that were delivered as, as aid by the UN. Again, it's not simply a reasonable fear. It's an absolute certainty that aid that goes to the Gaza Strip, while it's under the control of Hamas, will be diverted. And under these circumstances, there is no state that is required to facilitate the delivery of supplies. This brings me to, let's call it question 2B. I was going to answer three questions, but uh, let me ask, uh, I'm going to insert one. Does the fact that Hamas is a terrorist organization affect this analysis in any way? And it most certainly does. In general, the rules of uh, supply and facilitating supply are about duties of a sovereign or special duties, as I called them, and duties to facilitate humanitarian relief during wartime. When it comes to terrorist organizations, there is a different set of laws that applies. The primary text we're interested in here is uh, Security Council Resolution 1373 from 2001. And it was a Chapter 7 resolution of the Security Council that forbids all states in the world providing even indirect support to terrorist organizations. It requires states to deny terrorist organizations safe haven and a variety of other duties that are violated whenever a state extends aid to a terrorist organization or allows others, facilitates the delivery of support to a terrorist organization. Now, in a case like this, where supplies are going to be diverted to the use of Hamas, a terrorist organization, It is not simply permissible for uh, states to deny uh, facilitation of supplies. It is a requirement. 1373 requires that all states deny even indirect support, even passive support, to a terrorist organization like Hamas. So it's not just Israel that's required to deny uh, the support. It's every state, every UN member state, including the United States, including Egypt. And then this brings us to the last question I promised to address, which is the the question of siege and how this affects our legal analysis. So siege is a lawful method of warfare that has been known for thousands of years. 
There are some very basic duties that you have uh, a state has when it carries out a siege, and that is to not not impose a siege specifically for the purpose of starving a civilian population. It can, however, impose a siege even at the collateral cost of starvation of a civilian population. So there's a very narrow uh, restriction. And the other main main restriction in sieges is the duties we already talked about, facilitating humanitarian supplies, except where there is a, a fear of diversion and the other exceptions that I said are not particularly material to the case. If Israel's imposed a, a, a siege on the Gaza Strip, it doesn't fundamentally change our analysis. Um, Israel still has the same duty to facilitate supply only if there won't be diversion, and there will be diversion. Now, I'm hesitant to say that there's a siege, and I'll close in a moment. I'm hesitant to say there's a siege just because what a siege means in international law is a enclosure and cutting off of an area as part of a, a war effort. Right. And, and the idea is to cut off all supply to the enemy forces of everything. Right? There's, a siege is not partial by its nature, it's complete. It includes, by its nature, a siege uh, includes an interdiction of not just ammunition, but also things like water and, and electricity and fuel and food. Right? That's what a siege is. Is there a siege in this case? The defense minister of Israel announced a complete siege at the beginning of this conflict, right after the atrocities, or as we were still uncovering the atrocities carried out by Hamas. But Israel, as we know, does not actually control, does not encircle, and cannot therefore cut off the Gaza Strip. The Gaza Strip has land borders with two countries, one with Israel and one with Egypt. Israel does not now and has never exercised control, at least has not exercised control since its withdrawal from the Gaza Strip, has not exercised control over the, the border between the Gaza Strip and Egypt. Under those circumstances, Israel is not in a position to block supply from Egypt unless it uses military force. Israel has so far not used military force to enforce a siege. It hasn't used military force to stop Egypt supplying the Gaza Strip. If it were to do so, that would be a lawful measure in enforcement of a lawful siege. Israel could, in order to, to maintain its siege, block Egyptian supplies coming from the Egyptian border. The force would have to be used in a manner that complies with, otherwise with the laws of war. That is, the force would have to be without excessive collateral damage. That's the rule of proportionality. But um, Israel, since a siege is a lawful military operation, Israel would have the right to use military force to enforce it. But once again, this, this, is a, this question hasn't arisen yet because Israel to date not attempted to enforce a complete siege. All right, th those are my general remarks. I believe that I've answered the three questions that uh, I posed for myself and one uh, additional one as well. Hi, Avi, thanks for uh, taking our questions. You know, on, on the previous questions, quick clarification of fact, and you can tell me if I'm wrong. Kogat said yesterday that the last convoy was physically searched by Israeli agents and uh, Real Admiral Hagari has very clearly said that if any fuel tries to cross somewhere, Israel 
has the ability to strike uh, from the sky to stop it from going on. I will, uh, my question to you is this, I've been trying to ascertain what the legal I, process I, here is. <laughs> wait, wait, let's, uh, let's, let's just stop for just one second. Sure, Fuel sure. is already going through. They're, they're, the tanks, the trucks are full. And there's no mechanism for ensuring that fuel is not siphoned off the trucks. It's a little bit of a misleading statement to say fuel is not going to go through. Fuel's already going through. But please, go ahead. In these convoys that have gone in, no fuel has gone through. That's what Kogat has told us. Of and course it has. How are the, tru- how are the trucks moving? So they have They've fuel full in the trucks, drive them and come back. But fuel for the humanitarian needs inside Israel. So Kogat tells us no fuel has gone in. I'll take their word on it. Well, it's impossible for the trucks to move without having full tanks of gas. And it is a fact. They are not being inspected to make sure that there's no siphoning of fuel. I can guarantee you that. I mean, if, you're, if, you're, if your argument is that somebody is taking off a little bit of fuel from a truck going in, that's one thing. We're talking about fuel tankers for the hundreds of thousands of liters required every day. Kogat and the Egyptians and the UN say no fuel supplies to Gaza have been gone in at the request of the Israeli government. The amounts of fuel supply are immaterial. It is a potential diversion of supplies to the Hamas terrorist organization that is indirect support to a terrorist organization, period. There is nothing in 1373 that talks about fuel provided by tanker truck as opposed to fuel siphoned off the, the gas tank of a truck. They're both supply. Right. Let me ask Please you. Go ahead. Yes. Let me ask you the question I was going for. Everybody in Israel, including you, acknowledge that Israeli law requires Israel to facilitate the transfer of a minimum amount of humanitarian aid that would allow for the civilian population, even within Gaza, to be able. No, to- incorrect. Incorrect. I, I I just told you what the law is. The law is that humanitarian supplies must be facilitated. With a number of exceptions, and yeah. one of the exceptions is fear of diversion. And me, under me, the circumstances that you. prevail, there is no such legal duty. But please is, go ahead. Let me finish my yes. question. Uh, at some point, when a decision is made to impose a complete siege on the legal side, will the Israeli government say, well, we've been told that Kogat has informed the Israeli government there's sufficient food, medicine, fuel, etc., to meet civilian needs, or is it that the Israeli government would argue that because it has, it can be diverted, we can no longer allow it to go through, or is it a combination of both? The legal process in Israel is the legal advisors are asked, would it be lawful for Israel to impose a siege and under what conditions? Mm-hmm. And the rules here again are, are quite clear. And I, I've stated them and I, since I, they're not my rules. These no. are the rules that everyone knows, which is that in general, Siege is a legal means of warfare. So Israel has the the right during a war to impose a siege. That during a siege, there are two basic restrictions. The purpose of the siege may not be to starve a civilian population. And in this case, the legal advisors so uh, told the defense minister, but in any event, there is the, the purpose of the siege is not to starve the civilian population. The purpose of the siege is to deprive Hamas of all supply lines. And that's fairly clear. <laughs> and the defense minister said so. The other restriction is that in a siege or in any wartime situation, there is a requirement to facilitate the delivery of humanitarian supplies, primarily food and medicine, 
but that is subject to several exceptions. One of the, the most important of which here is where there is a reasonable fear of diversion to the enemy, it is not required to facilitate the supply. This again, this is not something that's new to me. So every legal advisor would be telling the Israeli government the same thing, which means that under the circumstances that prevail in the Gaza Strip, Israel does not have a legal duty to facilitate the supply of even humanitarian aid. There's certainly a great concern in Israel about how to provide for difficult humanitarian situations should it develop. And one of the problems that we have is there is not good information on the ground. The reports that are coming out of the Gaza Strip are coming from what's called the Gaza Health Ministry, which is under the control of Hamas. If you saw recently the uh, incident where the uh, parking lot of a hospital was struck by I mean, I mean, I mean, mi missile. If I can finish, please. If I can finish, please. The reports coming out of Gaza. If I can finish, if I can finish, please. If I can finish, please. If I can finish, please, sir. If I can finish, please. If you saw the reports of the errant missile fired by Palestine Islamic Jihad into the parking lot of a hospital, you will notice that thereafter, the recorded conversations of several senior terrorists in Hamas about how to present this. And the way they presented it was that there were uh, at least 500 casualties of an Israeli strike. Now, that that is the version, 500 casualties from an Israel, uh, 500 dead from an Israeli strike, it was the report of the Gaza Health Ministry as put out. Now, So now we now know what's the process by which the Gaza Health Ministry announces whether there are dead children or whether there is a, a, a crisis, a humanitarian crisis, and it is several terrorists sitting around deciding what best serves their war efforts. So again, we have to take into account we don't have reliable information. That said, Israel does monitor it because there is a sense, even though it's not legally required, that Israel has no interest in creating a humanitarian crisis in the Gaza Strip. Israel's interest is in destroying the Hamas terrorist organization and in safely recovering covering its hostages. This is not a secret. It's been said out loud and it's been said quietly. Everyone knows it. Can we acknowledge the fact that there are international observers who are of a reliable and independent nature, including the United Nations, who are warning of a severe humanitarian crisis and are not affiliated? With no, we, we cannot acknowledge that because the United Nations operations, OCHA, UNRWA, uh, UNICEF in the Gaza Strip, are under the control of, of uh, Hamas. There are periodic scandals of UNRWA's payroll being full of Hamas uh, members and supporters. There are repeated scandals of UNRWA facilities being used by Hamas to store missiles to act as human shields. There are repeated scandals of diversion of funds. There is no such thing in, in the Gaza Strip under the control of Hamas as an independent objective observer. That is an unfortunate fact, but this is what happens when you have a territory that's under the control of a sadistic, genocidal terrorist organization like Hamas. It's simply, it's simply myth to refer to, uh, to somebody there as being independent. It's not possible. So uh, just to summarize, in the legal question that we're going at, the only accepted version of the conditions for human for the for civilians inside Hamas is supposed to be Kogat. Kogat assures the Israeli government that there is no humanitarian crisis. The Israeli government makes its decisions on the continuation of the siege or not based on Kogat's recommendations, its own information, 
and whether or not the aid no, diverted no, to be allowed in. No, that's that's incorrect. There's a war going on. Kogat's word is not final here. Whose word is final? The government of the state of Israel, which means the defense minister, the war cabinet, and the government as a whole. Excellent. Thank you very much. I appreciated that. Jonathan, you had a question? I actually have three. So forgive me um, if you don't want to answer all three. And thank you very much for your, as ever, very enlightening talk. I'll do them in order of legality. The first one is the UK announced £20 million pounds Uh, extra funding to Palestinians yesterday. I want to know if that's in contravention of Security Council Resolution 1373, according to what you've said. The second one is, you've talked about what Israel's not obliged to do during war, according to the rules of, of, uh, of war. Are there things it is obliged to do in terms of what it must do to protect its own civilians? I.e., in fact, does it have no choice but to impl- impose some of these apparently bad for PR restrictions. And the third one is a bit more opinion-based. Why do you think the media especially so wantonly misunderstands these international laws when they're so easily explained by experts like yourself and so regularly done so by Israel uh, in its actions? I mean, do you, as somebody engaged in this field, have an opinion on why proportionality, supply of aid, humanitarian crises, etc., are so deliberately misrepresented in how they're covered? All right, let me, let me start with the first one and then move through. And you'll remind me if I uh, get this, uh, uh, the, the details of this wrong. The first, the first question was uh, 20 million counsel. pounds. The 20 yeah. million, right. Okay, so th- this is, uh, this is, the truth is this is actually a perennial question, you know, supplying aid to, to, the, uh, to the Palestinians. It's a question faced by almost every Western democracy because they, almost all of them are supplying aid to the, uh, to the uh, uh, Palestinians in some fashion or another. For every time that uh, uh, aid is passed along, there's, there's a factual question. Is any of this aid being diverted to support even indirect for terrorist organizations or for terrorists? The United States adopted legislation regarding aid to the Palestinian Authority that's supposed to address this. It's called, called the Taylor Force Act. The Taylor Force Act denies the Palestinian Authority any financial assistance so long as the Palestinian Authority continues to divert funds to paying uh, direct payments to terrorists for their uh, terrorist actions in a program that the Americans call uh, pay for slay. There is not parallel legislation elsewhere in the world. And so whether the, the, the 20 million pounds is lawful or not depends on who, to whom it's going. If it's going to the Palestinian Authority, that's a legal problem. That violates 1373 because that provides indirect support for, for terrorists. Even if it's going to other organizations, um, there's another problem, which is sufficient evidence has emerged over the years and a number of these organizations are cooperating with or under the control of terrorist organizations. The general response in uh, Europe has been to, to refuse to see that, that it, willful blindness about the fact of, let's say, uh, the, the, the control of a number of so-called uh, humanitarian and human rights organizations by the, the uh, Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, which is a, a recognized terrorist organization, and, and other such control of NGOs by terrorists. And passing aid to those organizations is illegal under 1373. And the way that uh, countries like Germany have avoided that legal conclusions by failing to notice it. 
right? Uh, that is by being willfully blind as to as to the facts. So I don't know in this case. I prefer not to speak without knowing the facts. And so I don't know in this case whether the 20 million pounds are lawful or unlawful. I would suspect there are insufficient inspection mechanisms to make sure that it's actually complying with the law. Okay, number. what was the second question, Jonathan? Uh, second one was, what are Israel's actual obligations during uh, obligations rather than right. obligations not to do? There are cases having to do with the human rights of citizens of a country and the duty of the state to protect those rights against violation by third actors, by third parties. It's clear, I think, that uh, under human rights treaties, for example, Israel is absolutely obliged to protect the citizens around the surrounding the Gaza Strip, but everywhere in Israel from the kinds of barbaric atrocities that Hamas is, uh, has carried out. It's obliged, as I said, to deny uh, Hamas a safe haven. Those duties require Israel to take strong steps to protect its, uh, its citizens. That said, I'm not aware offhand of a case where there's been a, a ruling that a state is required to go to war in order to defend its citizens. It's always assumed, and I think correctly, that if states have that right, they will exercise that right. And so there's no reason to require it. There are, interestingly enough, some European theories on, on this that are, are more demanding. If you look up something called the so-called responsibility to protect, there are those who argue that actually uh, states have a duty to go to war to prevent human rights violations, certainly the kinds of atrocities that were carried out by Hamas. And those who believe in a responsibility to protect believe should believe that there's a duty to wage war against Hamas. I will add that that duty would apply not only to Israel, but to every country in the world. Okay, your third one was? Third one was a bit broader, like from your expert position why do you think given oh, that these right. things are so Media. easily explained that they're so deliberately misrepresented i prefer in general not to engage in speculation about motives so all i can do is observe that the um well i'll observe two things number one the the uh, description of the requirements of international law as applied to to other states and as applied to Israel are not the same. And um, this is not just a question of the media. It's also so-called human rights organizations like uh, Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International persistently do this, uh, persistently describe Israel as being uh, required to follow international law rules that are not applied to to anyone else. It's striking, particularly when you have practices of the uh, uh, of the state of Israel or the Israeli military that are copied directly from doctrine and practices of NATO forces, and have been discussed by the same lawyers and gone through the same kinds of analysis and are relying upon the same legal materials. And so. Um, in, in the case of, let's say, uh, uh, um, NATO bombings in the former Yugoslavia, uh, the prosecutor for the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia determined that um, force protection 
concerns to protect uh, NATO pilots uh, were legal justification for flying at a higher uh, altitude that would ensure statistically a greater number of civilian casualties on the ground in Yugoslavia, but give better a likelihood that the pilots would not be shot down by anti-aircraft. Right? It's, it's a basic rule that's understood elsewhere in the world that um, force protection justifies the creation of collateral damage to civilians. But somehow or another, when it comes to Israel, everyone forgets this and pretends there is no such rule. Well, so there is such a rule. Now, that's 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 one aspect of this that I, I can't help but observe that the standards being used are different. Uh, the other aspect of this is that, uh, and, and this uh, um, actually is important in the domestic law of several states, it's a central part of the way Hamas and the other terrorist organizations conduct their campaigns, that they engage in uh, uh, propaganda efforts. They have a, uh, they have uh, uh, information warfare that's designed to portray Israel and Israelis and Jews as supernaturally evil and as engaging in all kinds of war crimes. If you look at the Hamas Charter, in addition to describing the Jewish people as responsible for all the wars, wars of the world, um, they also describe particular things that Israel does. They say that uh, 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 the Jews or the Jewish state or the Zionist entity engages in collective punishment and oppressive uh, actions and kills women and children and acts like Nazis. And it's part of the same Effort. It's part of a, an information uh, effort that's designed to portray Jews and Israel as evil and to make discussions of Hamas's crimes and numerous crimes as simply just another narrative. You've been listening to Professor Avi Bell, an expert commentator advisor on international law, who is providing a legal analysis of Israel's war against Hamas. By now you have surely heard of the horrible war that's going on in the Middle East. The war that began when Hamas, a savage, barbaric terrorist organization, attacked Israel completely unprovoked and for no reason. They came into Israel and they murdered over 1,300 innocent people. Here's a couple of things that I hear from people around the world. There seems to be some confusion. I thought I'd clear it up for you. First of all, they want a state. Give them a state, do they? Because in 1948, when Israel was established, you might not know, but the United Nations gave the Arabs a state too. It was called the Partition Plan. Israel accepted, the Arabs rejected. Why did they reject it? Because they don't want a state. How do I know? I don't know, why don't you look at their charter? Go look at the charter of the PLO, of the Hamas. What do they want? They want dead Jews. They say it clearly, they had a state. But you know what? Forget 1948, 2005, the disengagement. You might've heard of it. Israel left Gaza. Israel evacuated 10,000 of its civilians and handed Gaza to the Palestinians on a silver platter. Here, make a state is what we told them. You know what they did? They elected Hamas and they created a terror base. So first of all, let's stop with the fake narrative of they want a state. They don't want a state. If they say it clearly, it's time we listen to them. The next thing I'm hearing is, how could you cut the electricity to Gaza? How could you cut the water? Really? You think a country should provide electricity and water to an enemy state? But furthermore, we have video evidence of the Palestinians, Hamas, using the water pipes to attack us. They're literally using the water pipes to create rockets to shoot into Israel. And we should provide them with water? Have you lost your mind? Also, where are they gonna go? Poor Palestinians, they're not all guilty, they're not all Hamas. Of course they're not. You know where they could go? To Egypt. 
Go look at a map. They have a border with Egypt. Why is no one asking Egypt, their Muslim brothers, to open the border for the Palestinians? You know why? Because Egypt doesn't want them. Is that my problem? That's not my problem. I don't need to take in two million Palestinians who are attacking me and who voted. Who voted for Hamas? Not all Palestinians are terrorists, but the Palestinian people, the ones that everyone says deserves a state, they're a people, right? If they're a people, then they should be held accountable for their words and for their actions. They voted for Hamas. They need to pay the price. Disproportionate response is another thing. Israel needs to react and retaliate proportionally. Really? What's proportionally? Because let me tell you what Hamas did. They came into Israel. They murdered, raped, abducted over a thousand people. Elderly, children, pregnant women, Holocaust survivors. Yeah, that's what they did. So proportionate response? Are you suggesting that Israel should do the same to them? I surely hope not, because that would be highly immoral. So enough with the disproportionate response. Furthermore, let me ask you a question. The Palestinian people, are they a people? Or are they a group of punks? Because if there are people, like you say they are, who deserve a state, well, if they deserve a state, they should be held accountable. And if they are declaring from the river to the sea, and they want no Israel, Israel wiped off the map, then maybe we should listen to them because there are people. Besides, these innocent Palestinians that everyone keeps talking about, the ones that danced and sang on 9-11, who hand out candies on the streets every time an innocent Jew is killed, where are they now, these innocent Palestinians? Because I can tell you that my social media feeds are full of Muslims supporting Hamas. Have you seen thousands of Palestinians standing up and speaking out against Hamas? Because I haven't. And then they're going to say, but they can't. Hamas will kill them. They just have to fulfill orders. Where have I heard that before? Oh yeah, it was the Nazis who said that. It was not a legitimate response then, and it's not a legitimate response now. Stand up. The way Hamas is brutalizing and terrorizing the Jews and the Arabs in Gaza, they need to stand up, and there's no excuse that they don't. This is Israel's 9-11. No one, no one in their right mind debated whether America had a right to retaliate after 9-11. But forget 9-11, what about World War II? Did anybody question whether the world was justified in attacking Germany? But weren't there millions of innocent Germans who were killed? Yeah, they were, and guess what? It's called war, and in every war in the history of mankind, innocent people die. It's tragic, but it's the nature of war. Israel doesn't want war. It was forced upon us. So just like World War II was justified, just like America's war in Afghanistan was justified after 9-11, this war is justified. No one, no one is gonna tell Israel to hold our fire, to stop and to react and respond and retaliate proportionally. That's a ridiculous claim and it needs to stop. At the end of the day, we need to have integrity. We need to read their charters. They say it loud and clear. They don't want a state, they want dead Jews. This is not Arabs against Jews, Muslims against Jews, Israelis against Palestinians. This is good versus evil. This is a, an army that does everything to minimize civilian deaths versus a terrorist organization who does everything to maximize civilian deaths. Period. Full stop. If that is something that you cannot digest and speak out and say loudly and proudly, then I got news for you. You should start looking and searching for your moral compass. You've been listening to Hillel Fould, brother of Ari Fould, who was stabbed in 2018 by a Palestinian youth. Mortally wounded, Ari Fould gave chase, jumped over a small wall, his legs buckled. After righting himself, Fould pulled his gun and shot the Palestinian, after which he was rushed to a hospital where he was pronounced dead. Now, my next guest is David Southwick, the deputy leader of the Liberal Opposition in the Victorian Parliament. 
Welcome, David. Uh, hi, David. Nice to be with you. Just to introduce uh, what we will talk about, uh, last Friday night a vigil for Gaza took place at Federation Square in Melbourne, which incidentally is owned by the Victorian government. Now, for the occasion, nine Palestinian flags were raised for the day. I'd like uh, you perhaps to uh, talk about this inflammatory action which has generated much consternation in our Jewish community. Hmm. Yeah, well, certainly uh, my thoughts and best wishes uh, go out to all of your listeners at the moment, David. It's a difficult time for all of us. And um, and this is another example that highlights, again, something that was really unnecessary in terms of what the government uh, allowed to happen and is very divisive and very hurtful during these times. So normally uh, what we do have as a, an annual event, they have something which is called a, uh, a Palestinian National Day. Uh, in fact, um, you alerted me to the fact that the council had given a grant towards that day and they were going to host the day on the Friday. And I'd spoken to the, the mayor, Sally Cap, who, because of the situation, the current climate, they decided to not have that event and put it off to next year. But what they didn't put off was the fact that Federation Square continued on with a vigil, as you rightly pointed out, run by the, the Federation Square is run or managed effectively as a government board, uh, chaired by Martin Foley, the former health minister. And they continued with the vigil that night, but also decided to raise these flags. Uh, I'd spoke to people and was reassured the flags were going to come down, but ultimately those flags didn't come down until after that vigil that night. Uh, and, you know, I was told by others after, you know, lots of people didn't want to take calls after they effectively knew that they were in a lot of hot water with this. But I was told by the end of it all that, you know, that's fine, you can have your flags next week, which is ironically today when we had a a, a day uh, installation of 230 balloons and shoes to signify the 230 hostages that have been taken. But at the end of the day... These flags, whether they're our flags or the Palestinian flags, no one wants the flags at the moment. It's a divisive measure, um, and we don't want to be compensated because they did something wrong in the first place. I think uh, we've, we, we can't, we've got to get these things right, and when the government make these mistakes, it, it causes severe pain for all of us. So you're alluding to the fact that uh, the Victorian government uh, uh, was irresponsible in uh, their overseeing of uh, Federation Square, putting the flags up at uh, the very start of the day? Well, uh, well, uh, ultimately, you've got a... Uh, the board is um, effectively appointed by the Victorian government. Uh, you've got a minister responsible, Colin Brooks, that's responsible for that area, and uh, he didn't return calls on the day. As I say, the board, with Martin Foley, previous health minister, is actually manages the, the, the area itself. I did get a call from, from Martin, but it was only uh, 48 hours after the event. So, um, so yeah, I mean, everyone went to cover during that time. And it's just very disappointing, I think, ultimately, that the government needs to be, and those that are managing that facility need to understand it's a very significant public structure. And you don't see Palestinian flags like that uh, flown anywhere around the world in public buildings like that. It's very different when somebody might be doing it in their private residence. But to that nature, uh, to that significance, I think 
is not something that we should be doing right now. Yes, as you say, we shouldn't be doing it right now. The uh, the flags may have been flown uh, in conjunction with Palestine National Day, but since Palestine National Day was basically uh, transformed into a totally different event, it was inappropriate uh, for the flags Correct. to be flying. Yep, agreed, agreed. And, and as I say, it's... Uh, it, it, it's very, very hurtful during these times. It triggers a lot of people in terms of their um, in, in memories. It's, I, I, I totally understand it's not the Hamas flag, but you know what? We just don't need we just don't need this divisiveness at this time. That's for sure. Uh, now, I, I would I'm just uh, surmising here. We've got a new premier in the state. Uh, I haven't heard her say uh, one word yet uh, about this. Uh, social divide that's going on in our uh, in our communities uh, I'm, I mean I know that uh, well, I have expressed uh, some reservations about the, the previous leader we had in the state but uh, we've got somebody now who uh, we don't even know and uh, of course we saw a cartoon about her in the, um, the papers a, a couple of weeks ago um, that's about the only thing issue that she seems to have dealt with publicly Well look in fairness we've, we've absolutely tried to bring the Premier along and, and her comments publicly. She's attended a couple of events now and uh, she and she's reached out to the community uh, on a number of occasions and met with community leaders and, as I say, attended and uh, uh, spoke at a couple of uh, public events. Uh, we need to do whatever we can, to be quite frank, to keep the Labor Party on side with this because my biggest fear is that they get completely consumed by these left-wing activists. We've seen the union movement that have run a huge campaign against Israel. Uh, a number of unions have signed a joint letter attacking Israel and uh, many of the members of parliament belong to those unions. And I've just realised uh, within a couple of weeks when we did a condolence motion, which was beautifully in a bipartisan way, and the Premier spoke very eloquently supporting Israel, uh, and it was it was it was supported with everyone except for the Greens. A, a bit of that's kind of been walked back when I've seen individual members of Parliament starting to give speeches supporting uh, the Palestinians and really walking back from from supporting Israel. So you can see already there's been a fair bit of pressure that's been put on a number of Labor MPs, and so we've got to work even doubly harder to make sure that doesn't happen because the, the, the more that happens, the worse it's going to be for us. And that's why I'm in the trenches doing everything I can to try and be bipartisan on this. Uh, even today I took out um, Nina Taylor, uh, a member for Albert Park, and Sam Groth and the member for Nepean from our side and Ben Carroll, the Deputy Premier, and Paul Hamer, the member for Box Hill, to that installation in Federation Square and all of them spoke. So wherever I can, I'll try and involve Labor MPs and I'd be called asking all of your listeners to do the same to ensure we keep them in the tent because it's going to get harder and harder as the days and weeks go by and uh, and unfortunately all that means is more bad news for us. So one of the uh, members of the Labor Party of Victoria is the Minister for Multicultural Affairs, Ingrid Stitt, and... Uh, she uh, turned up to the vigil for Gaza on Friday and I've, I've managed to get a copy of a, a transcript of what she had to say and uh, I've shared it with um, Daniel Aguillon from the uh, 
Jewish Community Council of Victoria, he apparently did ask her to uh, express some concern about what's happening on the Israeli side, but she didn't do anything like that. Uh, do you feel uh, comfortable about uh, the fact that she presented herself at the vigil on Friday? Look, I don't have a problem people attending vigils, uh, but I think they've got to be consistent in what they say, and, and, and I don't know what she said, so it's very hard for me to make comment about what she actually said. But, uh, but I mean, it, I don't say different things to different people, and I've done a lot of work into faith, I've done a lot of work with the Muslim community, and, and, I, and I always say the same thing. You know, I'm very strong on trying to find common ground but, you know, I'll stand up for absolutely what's right. And I, I would have hoped that, you know, the sentiment that the Premier has given in terms of the official Labor line, let's call it, and the government line, I would hope that sentiment would have been expressed at that vigil. That's not taking away the Palestinian lives that have been lost. And by all means, you know, as, as a vigil, uh, no one wants to see um, lives that are lost. But I, I would hope that the language would have been measured. And, and I've I look forward to seeing a copy of what her speech was. Yeah, well, I've shared that with you. It just hasn't got uh, it hasn't got to you yet uh, for you to enable you to read it. Uh, so you can have a look at that. Uh, at, at your I'll pleasure. have a look. Yeah, yeah. No, thank you. Thanks, David. I'll have a look. That's great. With uh, the um, situation that's going on here, we're seeing a, a serious uh, fault line developing, and um, there's concerns, as you were saying, about social cohesion. I, I often hear uh, when we start hearing about anti-Semitism that uh, everybody starts harping on about uh, the neo-Nazis, but uh, there's a, a very large uh, trenchant um, movement within the uh, Muslim community that uh, is speaking out in, in with anti-Semitic language. It seems to me that yep. uh, the the media is uh, is trying to subdue this uh, in order to maintain social cohesion in our society. Yeah, look, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, I don't think um, I don't think the media is uh, reporting anyone that's going out there and in a negative way, if you like, and and going out there and um, inciting hate in a more broader. Um, uh, comment that I would make, and, and there's been a lot of Muslim leaders that have done that, and it's very, very disappointing. Um, and uh, there's a lot of people from the far left that are doing that as well, and that's, I suppose, um, you you would you would expect that. So that's expected. Um, I think it's interesting. You have peak organisations of the Islamic Council and everything, and it it is disappointing when it comes to election time um, for their body or whatever in terms of membership that they come out pretty strongly against us and and, and, and I've, I've expressed that it's, it is concerning um, but I think that probably the way forward is through some of the imams some of the imams are a lot more um, uh, reasonable Moa Lessi from the Ethnic Community Council has rung me a lot and been very supportive who is Muslim and and we're trying to find more reasonable um, members of the Muslim community to try and get that common ground. But I've got to say to you, straight honestly at the moment, it's becoming harder and harder, and uh, and it's very disturbing. We've got a number of um, people that live in our area. You've got comedians uh, that, that people see and love of Muslim background. You've got sports players, um, which we've seen that people revere. Uh, that have got in, got themselves involved in this and and uh, spreading kind of 
untruths would probably be the easiest and the nicest way to put this. But, you know, some horrible stuff. And I think that's really concerning and disturbing. And uh, I would say to anybody listening out there, if you're seeing people that are doing that, particularly uh, that have big profiles, uh, whether it be from the Muslim community or broader community, make sure you let them know. It's just not acceptable. And at the same time, when you see find people that are not that are actually supporting us, we need to ensure that we um, give them a pat on the back and say thank you. And I made that comment with uh, an example, Perry from the um, Mediterranean Tavern in in uh, in Gladhuntley Road. Um, he put a post up on his social media supporting Israel the day all this broke out, and he had forty cancellations in the first day of uh, of the rest of the post. And uh, thankfully, I made a mention on 3AW of that the other day, and he's now bookings have hit the roof of, of the Jewish community that are supporting him. So that's great. But that's only one. There are lots of people that are being targeted because they're being Jewish. Uh, a lot of Jewish businesses are being targeted. Uh, anyone that's being sympathetic gets targeted. We've got to make sure that they, they know that we're very grateful for any support that we can get right now. Now, the Racial and Religious Tolerance Act 2001 is an act of the Parliament of Victoria in Australia that makes behaviour that incites or encourages hatred, serious contempt, revulsion or severe ridicule against another person or group of people because of their race or religion unlawful in Victoria. But uh, in practice, this act is, uh, is virtually useless. Do you want to explain uh, why that's the case, David? Yeah, look, it's got a very, very high bar to be able to get a conviction. So you've got to effectively um, be to the point where the behaviour that you're doing in terms of the incitement is one of which is more than just threatening it. it it's effectively to a point where it's almost causing personal injury. Uh, the best example is probably back in, I can't even remember now, but 2010 when we had the BDS protesters and they were going out there and they were literally shutting down businesses and camping outside businesses and what have you. And they were targeting these businesses because they were Jewish. And we had 10 arrests and uh, that went through the courts and they all, all got off. Uh, and largely because the, the, the laws aren't really strong enough. Now, the government are reviewing that at the moment to strengthen them, to lower the bar. But there are other things that I think the government could do. We had move-on laws, which are important laws that the government watered down, and that effectively allows people to actually warn them if they are if they are causing disturbance and they are effectively um, disturbing the peace, let's call it. They're asked to move on, and if they're not moved on, they can be arrested. Uh, they're the kinds of things that even those protesters, the Nazi protesters, that not protesters, but the Nazi group that were on the train station in um, on Flinders Street that walked their way through the carriages and trying to identify Jews. I mean, if that's not incitement, if that's not disturbing the peace, if that's not um, uh, uh, intimidation, then I don't know what is. And the, and the police need to use some of those powers to, quite frankly... Um, uh, to make an example of those guys. And they're wearing balaclavas, they've got their faces covered. Their faces, their faces need to be shown, handcuffs need to be put on these characters and that will stop them from doing it again. Yes, I understand that the police uh, are rather frustrated by the fact that uh, they 
aren't able to do anything about these uh, sorts of uh, vile acts that we, we see in public spaces? Yeah, well, the police want more powers, uh, and it's a bit of a... And, and look, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm happy to, to do whatever is needed to ensure we don't have this, this intimidation and, and, and hateful attacks on our community. But, but by the same token... You can't ban your way out of this stuff. I mean, I was instrumental in this in the swastika ban. I was I was strong on getting the salute ban, but you can't just keep looking for things to ban. You have to actually act. And when there's a behavioural action of somebody that 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 is uh, that is causing people to live in fear, um, there needs to be a behaviour. There needs to be a response in terms of consequences. And there's a number of summary offences which could do that. I'm not saying the police don't need more powers, but it's really up to the government at the end of the day to sort this out to make sure that there is not only just the powers, but there is a direction. And I don't have to remind you, but during the lockdowns, uh, when people even attended a protest, they were arrested. Uh, when you had pregnant woman that was a pregnant woman that was uh, putting something on Facebook to. Uh, as, to suggest people I might want to attend a protest, she was arrested. So it was very easy to be able to arrest people to set an example during lockdown, during COVID, but it doesn't seem to be that easy to do that when you've got these hateful people that seek to, seek to effectively have Jews um, wiped off the planet. You know, like, quite frankly, it just beggars belief that we, we aren't able to do more. And I know that... I know that um, I know that there are others in terms of the protests and signs and everything else, but really what concerned me when we had those Nazis on the trains, wandering up and down, doing the Heil Hitler salute down the elevator, down the escalator, and then trying to target people on a train, I've never seen anything like that before, and I just don't think that, that has any place in our state whatsoever. Well, David, uh, I thank you very much for speaking to me today. I hope that I have an occasion to speak to you again when uh, there's a happier subject that we can be talking about. I look forward to that and be well and uh, and best wishes to all of your listeners out there, David. Thank you very much, David. Bye-bye. Pleasure. We've been listening to David Southwick, who is the Deputy Leader for the Opposition in the Victorian Government. Until next week, it's goodbye from the Israel Connection.